Welcome, and thanks for joining us at the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast. In this series, we discover that God has provided everything we need for life and godliness. Based in 2 Peter 1, we will explore God's invitation to participate in His divine nature in ways that we can cultivate a fullness of life. Here's today's message. I want to begin the message today with a bit of a straw poll with you. Um, A few questions for you to consider, to think about. Uh, I'm actually not going to ask for responses, actual responses, in the first couple questions, but uh, I will actually, for the last one, just raise a hand. So the ones that I don't want, uh, any hands raised for now, but I do want you to think about how you might respond to this, is how many of you have had conversations like, I attended uh, another church for a while, but even after a few months, I didn't feel like I belonged, so that's when I started to attend Central. How about this one? How many of you have attended Central for a while, and yet you feel disconnected? As a follow-up, how many of you feel so far away from a sense of community here, you are finally deciding to leave Central. So now here's the question, I want your response. If I define a church community as a loving family, the greatest kind of loving family that you can imagine, Please raise your hand if that is something you desire for your church. Even at home. Yeah, most people. It's powerful, isn't it? To feel like you belong somewhere. To feel like you are known in a place within a community. To feel like you're part of something, not just at the edges, but that you are really part of something. And this is where we find ourselves today in our summer series, celebrating that God has given us everything that we need for a godly life. For several weeks now, we are dialed in on the critical characteristics of that kind of life, as noted in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. This is Peter's final testament the areas of the Christian life he wanted people to remember after he passed away. So far, we've addressed Peter's passion for us to cultivate goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, and godliness. To cultivate these characteristics from out of our faith. And as we've learned, each of these has profound challenges for us. But as Phil explained last week, though we are encouraged to indeed make every effort, that is to commit doing our best with the resources that we have in each of these areas, Christ has done all the heavy lifting. We can realize each of these characteristics in our life through our knowledge of him and the resulting imitation of life, of his life. 
So today, though, we turn a little bit of a corner in the kind of characteristics we encounter. Right? With the previous items, the possibility exists. If you work hard enough, and all of us know we are capable of doing such things, the possibility exists that we can apply them as strictly matters between me and Jesus. Right? Do I need, really need anyone other than Jesus to be good, to gain knowledge, develop self-control, perseverance, and godliness? Well, actually, it doesn't matter how we answer that question, because we, today, we can no longer avoid the question, the, the, the claim. We must now come to terms with the fact that the health of our faith is directly related to how we connect with other people. This realization will result most likely in discomfort for many of us. Many of us are introverted. Some to the degree that we live regularly, experience regularly social anxiety. Others of us desire control so deeply that we are frustrated, almost angered by the thought that the health of our faith might be tied to interactions with other people who by nature we know are not predictable, consistent, or reliable. Still others have developed such bad habits in our lives, including inappropriately prioritizing pursuits in our life that effectively replaced the, replaced the faith priorities presented in this letter and throughout scripture that become detrimental to our relationship with other believers. Finally, others in our church have experienced such deep interpersonal hurt that the mere mention of mutual affection or a loving family brings that pain to the surface. So today we're going to consider that faith characteristic that in some translations are, 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 we read mutual affection Others we read, brotherly love. This is the characteristic directly applies to our relationships with fellow believers in Jesus, this community. Those like ourselves whom he calls brothers and sisters. Because you see, and don't get this lost, don't lose this, this is the very reason we identify. We are to identify ourselves as a family. Not because any of us deserve, but because all of us share in the same claim, Christ is our brother, God is our father, this is our family. It's not because, it's not reserved for people who we get along with the best, or that are the easiest to relate to, or that we have the most in common with. This is applied to us because of scripture, because of Jesus, because of his work. So this week, we're going to look at this particular relationship, relational environment. Next week, we're going to consider the much broader and more comprehensive characteristic related to others, which is agape. So for today, I want to do two things. We want to explain, we want to look at what is mutual affection, and what does the Bible describe as mutual affection, how we apply it, what it looks like, what are the characteristics, and then explain how we can cultivate mutual affection in the seedbed of our faith within this community. 
Okay, so first of all, here we go. What is mutual affection? This concept is, those of you may know, uh, derived from one compound word in Greek, the word Philadelphia. We've all heard this word before, I'm sure. But unlike the word butterfly, we can actually learn something about the idea from its component terms. The first part of the word is derived from the noun philos, one of the words used by the Greeks that we translate into the English word love. Philos is the most common form of, the, of love in the Greek, uh, Greco-Roman world. A person can philos a house, an animal, an item of clothing, food, and of course, another person. The rest of the word is derived from the noun adelphos, regularly translated by our English word brother. The root term can denote a male sibling, literally, that could relate to a male sibling, uh, but can also be used more broadly simply to the sibling relationship in general. So, in common Greek usage, the compound word Philadelphia refers to the specific love or the specific relational environment between siblings. Now, that it appears in our list here in 2 Peter is very interesting because this part of the letter isn't referring to household dynamics. And as Richard Bauckham explains in his commentary on 2 Peter, in non-Christian usage, this word denoted family affection between physical brothers and sisters. We just talked about that. But here's the point. But the early church used it for fellow believers, brothers and sisters in the faith. It is therefore a specifically Christian feature in the list in 2 Peter. Last week, Phil reminded us that many other, like many other New Testament letters, 2 Peter contextualizes the gospel, and, and the way it does that is by using familiar, familiar concepts, in, in, in this case, they can be philosophical concepts, but concepts that could be familiar to other people in, from the culture to help his readers, to help us, uh, as well as the original readers, understand what he's trying to communicate. Here, however, we find a non-Greek al- uh, application of a standard term. Peter wants his readers to know that the kind of love most commonly reserved for family members, nurturing, protective, loyal, forgiving, is to be that kind of relationship between those in Christ. You feeling uncomfortable yet? 2 Peter 1 reveals two facets of the definition of mutual affection. I've just noted the first, right? The first uh, uh, facet of the definition of understanding what is mutual affection or brotherly love is that it emerges from the household or family of God metaphor. This is something that comes to us because of the work of Christ, because of the way that Jesus taught about our relationships, about those who are in Christ, those who are going to follow him, must relate to, our, uh, to each other in this way. This isn't something that is applied externally, but something that emerges internally. And then the, gospel, or the, uh, the New Testament writers took the words of Jesus and organized them around this metaphor that we are part of the family of God. And sometimes we even sing songs, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. This is a theological statement. The second characteristic of the definition requires a quick reminder of the structure of 2 Peter, what Susan just read for us. In verse 5 we read, remember this, make every effort to add 
to your faith. Or in other words, apply all the resources that you have, all of us are to do this, apply all the resources that we have to cultivate our faith. Then we read, as we've been studying from uh, the previous weeks, the necessary virtues on which we're to focus, ending, at least today, on our term, Philadelphia. So the second feature of our term is that each of these characteristics presupposes faith. This is what's so important. Another one of these things that is crucial to understanding about getting along together as a community is that it is grounded in our faith, that it requires each of us to make this commitment to follow Jesus, to submit to Jesus, to surrender to Jesus, to trust Jesus with our life and with our future, to ground our hope, to ground our, our, our perspective of this world in what in what comes through the teaching of Christ. This is the kind of mutual affection. So the kind of mutual affection sorry, presented here demands the presence of faith as the ground in which to cultivate it. So the second characteristic is that mutual affection is grounded in faith. To see the third and final part of what, it mean, what we mean by uh, uh, mutual affection, we need to turn back uh, uh, a letter to 1 Peter. In the first chapter of that letter, we read the following in verse 22. Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, so that you have genuine, genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. There's two important features in this verse. I'll point out another one later, but for now, I want you to notice the relationship between obedience and mutual love. Purity of the soul, that is our salvation, our becoming like Christ, the work of the Spirit in us, comes from the obedience to the truth as exhibited by mutual affection. So this is the final facet of the definition of mutual affection. Mutual affection then retains a consequential relationship to obedience. In other words, we can't get away from this. If we say we're followers of Jesus, if we want to obey what he commands in our lives, then we've got that affects, we've got to treat each other in a particular way. We've got to express, we've got to exhibit, we've got to declare mutual affection towards one another in a way described by Scripture. In sum, then, mutual affection is the quality of love ideally experienced within a family, which is the starting point in terms of us comprehending this idea, uh, grounded in, the faith, uh, in faith in Christ, right? What it demands requires the resources offered to hu- humanity by Christ and a consequence of obedience to God. It is not a secondary matter. It is not something that you and I can get to when we have time. It is primary. To our faith. Nothing too surprising here, right? Maybe thus far. Especially if we've been following Christ for a while. We hear these sorts of things all the time. We sing about them. We nod approvingly anytime they're raised. But if you did not experience or are not currently experiencing a positive family relationship, this characteristic, this claim this command, this encouragement to care for each other can already be challenging to cultivate. If we don't have a personal context or point of reference, how can we know how to do it? 
If we do not see that a child can grow up with parents and with, in a sibling environment who protect them, guide them, celebrate with them, and enable them to leave and establish one of their own, whether married or single, it is understandably challenging to recognize the force of the familial metaphor implied by Second Peter. In fact, to admit, in some cases, one's family situation might be so poor that this metaphor threatens to be counterproductive in the development of faith. But to those, I say this, though you may be unable to draw from personal experience, can you imagine? Can you dream of a group so committed to Christ that they will provide a satisfactory replacement for a dysfunctional family of origin that can supersede even the best of them? How? It is possible because of Christ. Instead of just one Christ, now we have a community of people who are committed to him, of little Christs, as it were, committed to him and step-by-step step growing into his, uh, into his image to support you in your entire life development. That is why each of us, those of us in the church who have had a taste of healthy family environment must help lead the way to develop and demonstrate mutual love in our church, but must also not limit the nature of this community to how things were done in your home. The love of God far exceeds human love, even the best of it. To borrow a phrase from Soren Kierkegaard, the, Christian, the 19th century Christian thinker, there is an infinite qualitative difference between the things of God, including love, and the things of humanity. This is the kind of love implied by mutual affection. So, despite our varied backgrounds, how do we cultivate mutual affection in our church family? Let me first suggest a baseline for living out mutual affection. What does it look like? What does mutual affection look like? What are some of the characteristics? And here I'll briefly appear to, uh, appeal to four scriptures. In Romans 12, verse 10, our first scripture, there we read the inspiring, love one another with mutual affection. I was kind of sarcastic when I said inspiring because it almost kind of sounds like it's saying, love one another well with love. <laughs> Well, it's interesting. This verse doesn't have a verb in Greek. It's actually a noun that's presented to us. It's saying, that, you know, this sort of thing that I'm presenting, this is the quality. Uh, we've got a noun, our noun, Philadelphia, a preposition, into, or I think better towards, a pronoun, one another. How do we apply this towards one another? We have the adjective. As an adjective, right, it means to qualify the noun's quality. That is, this is the kind of mutual love that we're, we're talking about here. In this case, the noun mutual affection should be the kind that is implied to one another dearly or very affectionately, within reason, or tenderly. That's my favorite word here. That's my favorite application of this. This is our mutual affection then needs to be tender towards another. What does it look like to be tender? Well, I've, I've provided a picture of what I've had a new experience with being tender this last week. And, and so here's a, uh, a picture of me learning tenderness again, reminding what it is. This is our granddaughter, Stella. Can you, <laughs> no, that's not why, but thank you, yes. I couldn't resist, sorry, I couldn't resist. 
But this is a new experience, right? A, a, a reminder again of what it's like. But, but, but I can't help but think this is how God wants us to treat each other. Now, no, I'm, we're not looking to swaddle each other and hold each other like that, but this is the Im- impression, right? We look at each other and we treat each other dearly, that they're precious. Why? Not because they think the same things that we do or look the same as we do, but because they're going after the same Christ. They're dedicating their life to the same Christ that I am. That's what makes them precious. And this is why we can treat each other. This is why the Bible encourages us in Romans 12 to love each other, to express mutual affection tenderly. We are precious in God's sight. And we need to learn how to see each other as precious in that very same way. So according to Romans 12.10, this passage directs us to then love one another tenderly. Our first characteristic of what it looks like to express mutual affection. The next uh, characteristic we find uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. And there we read these words. Now concerning love of the brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anyone write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do love all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, beloved, to do so more and more. There are a couple of interesting things in this passage to notice. First, Paul is so passionate about the, that Christians should relate to each other in this way that he makes up a word. It's the only place in, in all of Greek literature that we could find, certainly in the New Testament, where we encounter this word, that we are God-taught in matters of mutual affection. Here I think Paul is trying to communicate at least three things. First, this part of God's promise was made through prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah. For example, in Jeremiah 31, beginning with verse 31, we read that the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will put my law within my people and I will write it on their hearts. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. How does this happen? This is the second thing that Paul implies with this particular word. Through the working of the indwelling spirit, the very presence of God's spirit in our lives, provoking this, or maybe provoking is the wrong word, inspiring, encouraging, uh, empowering us to do this kind of thing, to care for each other, to recognize when we're off, and to, and to reapply this and to reset our relationship with others. The third thing, finally, I think Paul also refers to Jesus and his life example. We are literally God-taught. We have the example of God and how he does it through the life of Jesus in the Gospels. How do we know how to express love? We look at the way Jesus lived and we mimic his example. Now, the characteristic though, the specific one of mutual affection that Paul emphasizes in this passage is redundancy. That's how inspiring is that? Redundancy. How are we to love each other in Christ? Well, we're to do so more and more. This is so important to Paul that he goes all in in redundancy. More on its own would have sufficed, right? How do we love? Do it more, right? We can never get past that. But then Paul, he says, do it more, oh, and then do it more again. Because he wants us, he recognizes the importance of loving each other excessively. This is one of the key marks, as we're going to hear for communicating to each other and to the world that we are following Jesus. 
The faith that generates this characteristic is not intended in our lives to hold back love, to be stingy with love for other followers of Jesus. So, in addition to loving each other tenderly, the Bible and the Spirit within us, inspiring us to do this, directs us to love excessively. The third characteristic we find in the, ver- in the first verse of Hebrews chapter 13. There we read, let mutual love continue. Here we have a verb, and here this verb is the imperative mood. That means there's, this loving is serious business. There's a command, at least if it's not a command, there's something passionate that the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate to us. That love must continue. When God adds new numbers of, of people to, our, to Central, we must ensure that our love continues to them beyond just our familiar group, that, that little group that we're the most comfortable within the church. Our love must extend beyond those boundaries into everyone in the community. Love must persist. It must continue in all of our relationships. You see why the, the, the seedbed of faith is so important if we're not committed to Jesus, first and foremost, this becomes, very, this becomes humanly impossible. Because all of us as human beings, we know this, right? We have our favorite types of people. We have those people in our midst that we're most comfortable relating to. But here the author of Hebrews says, love must continue. Love must uh, persist beyond any of the, the, uh, the, the boundaries or the borders that we fabricate for ourselves. So in addition to love tenderly and love excessively, then we are to love persistently. And finally, and here is where we must refer back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22 that I read earlier. The verse that read this, Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. I've already talked about the consequential relationship love shares with obedience, so let's quickly notice how this verse adds to our thickening view, our deepening view of mutual affection. And you likely heard it already. We are to love each other deeply. This is our commitment. This needs to be our commitment to each other. We need to learn how to do this. We need to grow in our willingness to not just accept each other and welcome each other, but grow to know them and in doing so, love them deeply. The point here is that we ought to be eager to demonstrate mutual affection to others, to other followers of Jesus. So we're to love eagerly. Wow. So now our understanding of mutual affection results in love that is tender, treating each other as precious in God's sight because they are excessive. We're not stingy with our love, reserving it for only those people who we are most comfortable with. Enduring, that is, we break through all of these boundaries that we fabricate for ourselves, our comfort spheres, and we look for those who are in need. And we're eager about it. Now all of us can grow in this, right? But how do we learn? How do we grow? How do we do this specifically? Well, can I just encourage you in in one particular area? And that is, I'm sure all of us, I hope all of us, 
If we don't, we need to make sure we spread this around. But at least one other person that we think does it really well. Where you talk to them, you interact with them, and you leave there feeling encouraged, feeling like they were really interested in what we had to say. They really paid attention to me. Those are the type of people in our midst, you people know who you are. Or maybe if, if you don't, we need to let you know you are, our, uh, you are our helpers in this. You are our encouragers, people who do it well, and we need to learn from you. And, and it's not enough, and sure, sh- sh- I understand. Some of us, it's a little bit more difficult for because we are by nature, our personality is more introverted. That's okay, but folks, can I be honest? And that's how I am, naturally. But we can never make an excuse for obedience to scripture, right? We can never say that, oh, well, that's just how I am. So here, here, let me give you a quick summary of, of how I explain this to people. God's given us two things, personality and character. Our personality is something that that he's given us that makes us unique. Indeed, it includes things like our uh, comfort in social environments. But he's also, and that, that rarely changes, if ever, he's also given us character. It's the character that helps us to uh, leverage, to live out our personality. Our character can change. Our character can become stronger. This is why we have scripture, to help us shape our character so we can say, yes, I'm I'm more introverted, but but I see the the value. I saw it in every every hand that was raised. This is important. And if this is important to scripture, and I recognize that that, uh, all of us are important to... uh, to God because they are precious. You are my brothers and sisters. And so I'm committed to loving you, to growing in my willingness to love you and my ability to love you. And I hope and pray that that's the case for all of us here. But we we can learn from those who, who who are more gifted at it, who do it more naturally. And so if that is you, can I encourage you, lead the way. Help us grow, help us to become better at this, help us to reflect Jesus more and more. Because as we're going to hear, this is crucial. Each of us is very aware that things can get complicated and even painful when it comes to Christian community. So what then? I can't find anything in Scripture that allows us to love each other in any other way than tenderly, excessively, persistently, and eagerly. I can't find a verse that says to love each other in this way unless you don't really like them. But I do know additional things are in play when things become painful in a Christian community. This on its own, this whole idea of conflict, of of hurt and pain in a Christian community on its own could take up a sermon series, but today I, want to focus on the, today I wanted to focus on those baseline characteristics, the tenderness, and encourage us to grow in our tenderness, the excessiveness, the desire to spend and spend and spend our love, because why? We're never gonna run out. To be persistent, to break through those, those barriers that we fabricate for ourselves, and then to be eager to do that, to just look for people to love to care for. Those are the things I wanted to focus on today, but because I recognize that 
there are difficulties and complications, I want to give us a, a, a place to start when things in church get tough. Where to begin when things are tough in Christian community? First, I want us to remember this. If you haven't guessed it already, Christian community is serious business. Matthew chapter five, Jesus states that it is more important than our worship. In Matthew 18, we read that it transcends any natural human parameters. Remember Peter saying, Jesus, how many times should I forgive? Remember that? Seven times? Because that, that's, that's quite a lot. Oh, Jesus says, forget that. 70 times seven, right? Just keep going. And then most soberly, Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, hear this, how we treat each other in some cases determines how God treats us. Forgiveness. These are the reasons why this characteristic of mutual affection is vital to our faith. If you're finding all of this very difficult to imagine, let me recommend a resource that I have found helpful over the years called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. It will give you excellent insight into and specific direction on navigating relationships that become painful in Christian community. Actually, anywhere, but certainly in Christian community. Rather than go through the whole book, and it's extensive, as an introduction today, let me share sort of a summary statement that he provides. He refers to as the peacemaker's pledge. Here's what it says. As people reconciled by the death, or to God by the death and resurrection of Jesus, we believe that we are called to respond to conflict in a way that is remarkably different from the way the world de- deals with conflict. We also believe that conflict provides opportunities to glorify God, serve other people, and grow to be like Christ. Therefore, in response to God's love and in reliance on his grace, we commit ourselves to responding to conflict according to the following principles. We commit to glorify God in all our relationships. Do we really believe in the power of God to redeem relationships, even the hardest cases? Well, we sure sing about God's power. We sure talk about God's power. It is possible that God can redeem even the most hurtful situation. And second, we're also committed to get the log out of our own eye. Each of us contributes to this, right? We are committed to gently restore one another. And that's how I prefer. When we're we're involved in, in leadership issues, sometimes we refer to this as church discipline. Actually, more biblically, it should be church restoration. Our goal should be to see these relationships, these people restored to us. But even more than that, and here's where it is so important that we are committed to the faith, to our faith in Christ, that is, we're also committed to go and be reconciled, more than just restoration, to reconcile that relationship, to reconcile with that person, 
with that family, with that situation. Folks, look, I, I, I recognize that in some cases, in many cases, this is very difficult, and it takes time, and it takes steps, and it takes um, uh, bit by bit. But this is what Jesus is commanding. This is what Jesus is inviting us to. So I encourage you to speak with Phil or I, or go check out the book yourself. Check out the website. And yes, there's an app for that too. It's called Peacemaker Light. I encourage you, download that. And look at some encouragements there. So let's conclude this time. And I want to leave the final words with Jesus. You know where I'm going with this, right? How can we talk about loving one another without referring to, uh, to the words we read in John chapter 13? By this, Jesus said. By this. What's this? Mutual affection, how we treat each other. By this, Jesus said, people will know that you are my disciples. Right? Because all of us know human relationships, and it is miraculous when people get along in community. And this is what Jesus does. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for one another. It begins here. Our reputation as followers of Jesus is not based only on how much we know or how dedicated we are to Scripture. Our reputation, that is one of the specific things Christ mentions that identifies us with him, is this very thing, mutual affection, love for one another. This is why this characteristic is so important to our faith. Is it worth our attention, Central? Let's show each other that it is. Whatever happens within a Christian community, it must be enveloped by this kind of love. No matter what kind of programs, what kind of ministries, without love, we are only clanging symbols. So let us demonstrate a love toward each other that is tender, that is excessive, extravagant, persistent, and eager, looking for the next opportunity. Then, when things are difficult, let us trust in God's word and his spirit to lead us through all the way to reconciliation and through it all to demonstrate that we are indeed disciples of Christ. I want to invite our uh, music team back up. And I want to encourage you. I, I, again, I've tried to make this clear. I've tried to you know, pause at certain moments and note. I, I know this is sensitive in some cases. I, I know that. Can I encourage you today? Can I encourage all of us? We've got some prayer partners that will be up present. Can I encourage you to, to take advantage of prayer and commit this to pray? Of, 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 step in, of stepping in there with someone and saying, this is difficult for me. I need God's help. Can, you, can we pray about this together? And let us take this and let us grow as a church, but let us commit this, not in our own strength, but in the faith and all the resources. Why? Because God has given us everything we need for mutual affection. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening. And we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings in person or online. 
For more information about who we are and what's happening at the church, visit us online at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast. 